Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Sitting in your gear. If, you, if you're sitting at 420 watts and it's 8% for 8Ks, like that's what you're doing. There's no finesse. It's making a difference on the valley roads and everywhere else, right? But that, yeah, but then I suppose you're, then I suppose what you're doing is you're suggesting then that uh, that technique and the, the modern technology around gears and stuff doesn't make a difference to climbing i think it makes a difference like when you do that planche de belfi finish of last year's tour on the gravel where it kicked up to 15 16 percent this year on the puy de dome for instance which is incidentally the first climb i ever did out of south africa i took my bike to clement ferran it's like oh, that looks like a cool climb oh my god <laughs> it's like a corkscrew up this fucking yeah. volcano yeah, yeah. insane 15 percent. i was zigzagging like chris froome <laughs> i say that on the podcast um, well, we are recording now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> outtake show. But like... I don't know going to have an outtake, but maybe this is the way we intro our show. <laughs> <laughs> but I think... So it definitely makes a difference, the range they get. Like, so now you get Roglic, even looking at the one bar that he pulled in the TT, right? Yeah. And I think they said Vinegar used one in the Dauphiné in that really steep, punchy stage. Yeah. So there's that. Now you get the, the the twelve at the back, even you know. Yeah. So maybe that's, but but I don't know that that's accounting for like a tourmalet, mm. where you just, you know, the requirement is five point eight to six watts a kilo, and that's going to be achieved at ninety to ninety five RPM. You had the gear in the nineties. Yeah, maybe. But like I could see, definitely see it on the descents and the flats, where it's making a difference to the. Yeah. That's why I still think the way to resolve the debate is to, is to say, segment the race into the flat bits, the downhill bits, and the uphill bits. And I reckon all the speed improvements in the last five to eight years are the downhill bits. Mm. Mm. I, th- I think because of the aerodynamic and the disc brake tech, mm. I reckon. Mm. Don't you think? Well, yeah, that's the debate. There's not enough, there's not enough research is at the mm. end of the day about what the, benefits, what the benefits of everything is, and that's what we need to do. Mm. So for those of you who are listening, we've been <laughs> just chatting about, our, uh, about what we've been doing in the last couple of, uh, couple of weeks, and uh, we're just about a few days away from the Tour de France, and we're discussing this Unchained documentary that we watched on Netflix. I'm sure that many of you who are interested in the world of cycling will have watched it. Uh, let us know what you thought about it. I was kind of vaguely disappointed actually that there'd be lit, there'd be a little bit more behind the scenes stuff but uh, yeah, yeah it's not for us though right it's not for us no not it's probably us. That's more what I have to keep telling myself yeah, it's mm-hmm. it was it was pretty basic mm-hmm. there were some interesting sort of things that you can look in the behind the scenes and kind of see what was going on but I kind of felt like I needed a bit more of the grit rather than the stuff that we know but I guess you're right if you're not a Tour de France regular watcher the thing was it was designed to get you into that space to understand cycling, what it's about. So, yeah, and yeah. I think early, right from the beginning, it became clear that the 
the race wasn't the subject. No, the people, the people are the are. subject, and so the ra- the the actual structure and the outcome of the race. Mm-hmm. I mean, they tell the story in the first episode of EF, mm-hmm. and there's that scene which. 100% looked staged to me of Jonathan Vortis talking to his board in that boardroom saying, if we don't win a stage, we're all fired. Remember that? Yes. It looks so so fake to me. If, there have been a few actually scenes that looked like they were staged. Yeah. Cyclists are not actors. But, um, you know, then they won They won the King. They were, they were in the King of the Mountains jersey in those first two days because Magnus Court went on those breaks and he was, yeah. he was waving. EF got a lot of exposure in the first couple mm. of days of the tour. Yeah. But the, the it's almost... The documentary almost ignored that mm. in order to create a different narrative mm. which then neglects the actual tour yeah so it became within yeah. the first 20 minutes of the show it was obvious that this was not a tour de france podcast <laughs> uh, yes. documentary documentary yeah. it was a human interest human one interest, which yeah. is cool which i suppose what those all those documentaries everything from the formula one yeah they're I all mean, like let's, let, a lot of these documentaries that are coming out are as a result of that formula one um series that was launched what four years ago now mm. which basically I read some of the studies. The amount of interest of Formula One as a result of these documentaries has just you know, like reinvigorated the sport to a large extent. Mm. And then there's also a golf one. The tennis one is excellent. Um, mm. I watched that. Um, uh, I watched the whole series of that. Great insight into some of the characters behind it, especially the young guns coming through. And some interesting stuff. Um, he's the Aust- very controversial Australian mm. guy. Curious. Curious. I but, mean, fascinating but. to talk to him about what was going on you in his think- mind. Do you think you you say great insights? Is that because we don't immerse ourselves in tennis fifty two weeks a year? And would would someone who only watches the Tour de France find the same level of insight from the Netflix documentary? Do you think? Yeah, I would agree probably. that I'm probably more of a fanatic on the on the Tour de, Tour de France stuff than I am on the tennis stuff. But I watch enough tennis to say that I I'm not a beginner watcher. Yeah. Whereas what I find interesting about the tennis one is that there was a really good human interest story around Nick Kyrgios, yeah. and it really kind of goes to the heart of him as a person massively controversial and you know they love him or hate him as, as some of his opponents said but talks about his history and his father being involved in his training and how they he's battled with mental illness and all that sort of thing so he kind of opens up about it and it's the same thing in the tennis uh, in the golf, golf things, one, yeah. stuff as well but there's a lot of real human interest stories which you don't see when you're watching a tournament uh, right. You don't see that background. And I think that is quite nice about it, is that you see a different side to the sports. And in, in a way, the Tour de France thing was the same. You saw some of the personalities that we don't necessarily see in the coverage. Um, we talked a bit about this before we, we kind of pressed record. We were talking about Tim, um, Tom Pitcock and right. his descending abilities. I mean, he's very well known for his descending abilities. He did a, a great video with Saffa Bryan, the famous descender from the, from the US, South African-born guy lives in California where he goes and follows Tom Pitcock down this <laughs> amazing <to> <laughs> descent. I mean, it's incredible yeah, to watch. Yeah, yeah. But it does show you the kind of character that, that Pitcock is um, and kind of gets you a better understanding of, of that race and how grand that performance is when he won an Alpe West last year. So, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, and I believe they're doing another year this year, yeah. at least. If well, not hopefully there are no masks. <laughs> that... I think you can't see what they're saying. It is a great shame for the race that UAE didn't consent. Mm. Because the big story of the 22 tour was the the yellow jersey rivalry and race. And you're only ever going to see one side of it. Mm. And they've kind of tried to shoehorn media stuff from Pogaccia into it. And Mm. it's almost forced them to create a narrative that wasn't there and ignore the one that was, you know. That was Mm. a a pity, I thought. Mm. And then it's funny to see like Vote being cast as a bad guy. Like we know it's not the case, you know. 
And there's a few other characterizations they've had. Although to Although he go becomes to. the hero. In in the show. <laughs> in the show. Yeah, but yeah. even in the even in the beginning, I don't think he, he was ever a bad guy. So there was there was no transformation. It shows you how strong he so. is when you see some of the interactions on that Yamba Visma team bus. You understand that to some extent White Van Art is the kind of he's almost the leader and oh, yeah. and yeah. of that team to a large extent. He might mm. guy might be that might have been the winner of the tour. Mm. But White Van Art is the sort of you know, he's the captain. Oh yeah, to some extent yeah, of that sure. ship, other than the sure. than the sport, the director, mm. you know. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I give it a solid seven. I've enjoyed it. Out, like, out of what? Ten. ten. <laughs> <laughs> That's the important part. Out, out of ten, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Anne's enjoyed pretty, it. She's not into cycling, and she's enjoyed seeing like, oh wow, Pitcock didn't realize he t- was capable of that, you know, because they don't, you know, mm. oh the French. This is, your, this is your better half, just for yeah, some yeah, context. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, but she does ride a lot these days on an on 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 e-bike. So. Dragging me uphill and yes, at the same exactly. speed as I'd go down them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so, so it's cool for people to see. Mm. I'm not sure. Maybe it's a language thing. I'm not sure it'll do for cycling what Drive to Survive did for mm. um, for Formula One. Because where's the market for growth in cycling? It's probably the US. And I don't know. that. Uh, I hope it does, but I'm not mm. sure that it will. But I think it's... Even if it adds 5%, it's still cool. I think what they did well is they added to the mystique because there was a, the French sort of voiceover. And that really kind of, I mean, I, I don't listen to things with the, with the, with the, with the different um, no, no, voiceover. In fact, that's the best tip. Do not watch it with the dubbing. Yeah. It's awful with you, dubbing. Use the subtitles. Yeah, subtitles are the way to go. It's the way to go because you want to hear the French mm. narrator there because it's that's what makes yeah. it quite special. And I some think of the French, good... some of the French is dramatic. Mm. In the peloton, there is life. Yes. Outside of it, there is only death. Yes. <laughs> the French are very good at romanticizing <laughs> Just, very basic things. Some of it is very very <laughs> dramatic. But anyway, I've en- I've enjoyed it. So I'd recommend it and let us know. I mm. thought at the time watching it, there'd be some quite cool, like the science of Unchained. Mm. Yeah, and then I then I forgot what was in the first and second episode. But for instance, in episode three, there's quite a cool medical and scientific theme around riding through pain because basically that whole episode revolves around riders' failed attempts to finish and win mm-hmm. because of crashes and injuries. And Pino talks about the injury that then kept him basically out for a year, right? Yeah, and he couldn't take stuff for it, or he wouldn't take stuff for it. And and then you had Ben O'Connor riding through pain because the team is French, you know, AG2R, and they need the stage when they need the GC guy. And it's only once they eventually get a stage when that he's sort of allowed by the team to go home. And I suppose there's a medical ethical discussion there. There's cool stuff in the enjoyed episode four, where which is basically the stage where Roglic and Vinegar combine to attack Pogaccia, which was for me the most exciting cycling I think I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> And there's cool science there. Like, why are you doing that to him that far from the finish line? What's the physiology? Yes. What are you trying to cause yes. in Pogaccia? So maybe maybe as we get into the tour, which is literally now in a few days, mm. we can start to revisit some of those scientific mm. concept, concepts of the 23 tour anchored to Unchained and explaining mm. the physiology. That would be cool. And you're right. That particular day when Vingard essentially took control of the tour, mm. I was always but unsure as to how that went down and how they managed to work Pagacha over. But and, and watching that episode, you do get a you get a pretty good idea about what the plan was and how they executed it successfully too. The most interesting thing for me about that, which is also the biggest 
and it's it's one of the better episodes in the series. But mm. it's also like if that if that one had a letdown, it's this: is that you didn't hear much from Roglic because he's the one who made it happen. Yeah, and he what sacrificed it, himself to some effectively. And I think it's because he knew that his race was over because mm. he'd crashed on the cobble stage. Mm. And the, maybe dislocated his shot. Anyway, like <laughs> we're not exactly giving spoilers, right? Because no, this, no, is, this was a year ago. <laughs> yes. But if you watch the Unchained documentary, you'll see all this stuff happening. And it would have been nice to hear more from Roglic about his thinking on the day. Because what emerged in the show is that Primo says he's, he's feel good. He wants to go. Mm. And the director in the car says, whenever he's ready, go for it. And mm. he goes over the top of the, the, the climb on the mm. descent. So it's interesting because I thought it was more orchestrated than that. Mm. I thought they said... On the Kilometer. bottom of this climb, at this K, we go. And it actually was more like, just go when you feel you're good. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I suppose they do have to see how they're feeling on the day. Yeah. So they I knew still that... don't understand why Pogaccio was chasing Roglic, because he wasn't really a threat to the GC at that no, point. Same. So I never understood that. But he did. He chased Roglic down, and that and was his undoing in the end. Over and over and over, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. so, yeah. it w- wouldn't happen again. Not that yes. it will this year, because Roglic isn't in it. But yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. UAE can do it this year with, eight, with Adam Yates. Yeah. Yeah. Try the reverse on Yumbo. Vinegar yeah. wouldn't chase him, I don't think. No, I don't think so, because he knows he's not a threat to the overall just stick, climb. stick teammates on and hold him at a minute and then bring that minute back in the last week of the steep part of the climb and it's problem mm. solved. So Bogacha dropped his guard there yeah. by throwing too many punches. Well, I'm having to work pretty hard this week because I know in the next couple of weeks it's going to be uh, <laughs> it's going to be a little bit of lack of productivity in the afternoons during my workday, which yeah. I have to be very careful of. So, Same. Same, yeah. if you're loving the Tour de France, uh, yeah, let us know your thoughts and predictions. Um, we're going to be interested in, of course, watching that. And um, I hate I hate to admit it to some extent because there are many other great cycling tours. I think there's a there's Giro was fantastic this year. I love the Vuelta for the way <laughs> that it's laid out, the classics as well, and I kind of get. You know, is the Tour de France boring? But it is still the biggest. It is still the best. It's the most prestigious. It's the one that people who don't follow cycling still understand the Tour de France. Um, whereas in, you know, they don't understand the Giro or the Vuelta, but they just understand the Tour de France. So it's, yeah. I, I guess it's the it's the big mama. Yeah, my mom watches it. Yeah. I think she loves the scenery more yes, than I the racing. It's a lot of people. But she'll say to me on the weekend, like, oh, did you see that finish into whichever town it is? And mm. she'll know the characters because... You have to see the characters to see the scenery. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's cool. Looking forward. So just on that, there's a good segue into one of our... So today we've got a lot of news to share. And we're going to basically do our entire podcast around some of the news that's been happening in the last week or so. And it really has been a very busy time for the news in sports. And uh, this is a good segue into a, an article that appeared on on stickybottle.com, which is a <laughs> lovely website and got some very interesting stories around cycling. But they talked about an interview that Garant Thomas did on a podcast, the Cycling Podcast, where he said, um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a loose quote, but basically saying that he didn't have the, the zip, he didn't, he, he didn't have the, the, the grunt, I think the word was he, was he used here, during the TT at the, um, at the Gira, where he lost to Roglic, um, and he blamed the use of bicarb um, for that lack of grunt. But uh, he said it only kind of happened in the last one and a half, 1.1 kilometers, um, which I suppose is where you're going you're gonna to feel it because that's where the climbing really hurt. Yeah, although, what was the winning time on that stage? It was oh. like just under an hour maybe. Yeah, I can't remember now. So, so Thomas, it's like four, it's 40 minutes in. Yeah. Like, I'm not expecting Cobb to make a difference there anyway. So I'm surprised it's even in well, play. Well, let, let, let's remind ourselves what, what, what Bicob is supposed to do. Well, 
for those of you who haven't listened so to from previous first, episodes. So from first principles, mm. during very high intensity exercise, one of the regulatory or limiting factors, depending on which model you want to apply, is that we accumulate hydrogen ions and, and the muscle loses its contractile force producing ability because of the acidosis of exercise. And bicarbonate is a buffer. So it's basically a mop or a sponge that then comes in, soaks up all those hydrogen ions, brings the pH in the muscle cell back down to where it's supposed to be, and then fatigue would be in theory delayed. And you can go either harder before you hit the ceiling, or you can go for slightly longer at that ceiling. Right. So, so in principle, and, and, and way back when, bicarb was studied and found to be performance enhancing for sprint duration exercise. I've seen studies on 200 meter kayakers, which is like a 30 second bout, you know, Wingate type 30 second cycling, 500 meter sprints, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. In the last couple of months, there have been a few developments and we covered one or two of these on the podcast. The same company that produced those hydrogels that now allow athletes to consume so much more carbs, Morton, Martin, Martin, whatever. How you want to pronounce it? Yeah. They, remember, they, they sort of became the big carb supplier to the sub two marathon attempt. Mm-hmm. Well, they applied that same technology, this is what they call hydrogel technology, to encapsulate the bicarbonate to allow it to be tolerated better. Because the problem with bicarbonate use in athletes was it caused nausea and gastro issues and vomiting and so on, which is not obviously ideal. So even though the, the studies, not unanimously, but there seemed to be a benefit, the tolerance to the bicarb was really low. And now all of a sudden this, this tech has come out that allegedly allows you to take it, get the good side without the bad side. Mm. And so there was an advert with Primoz Roglic. We played a clip in in like classic Primoz style. It's like, does it work? He says, uh, maybe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, but anyway, it, it appears that a lot of teams are using this stuff now. And then there's a really interesting study that we also covered on this part a, while, a few weeks back where the combination of bicarb and ketones seems to potentiate the effect of both. So in other words, ketones by themselves may be small effect. Bicarbs by themselves may be small effect. In combination, nice effect because, you again, you, you eliminate what is an otherwise a trade-off where mm. the ketone causes the acidosis. Now you correct that and you get only the good, not the bad. You know, mm. cost-benefit. Mm. Cost, cost is gone, benefit is left. You're winning. So anyway, so that's why they're used in, in sport. But I I would be surprised if anyone had an expectation that in the 44th minute of a 55-minute bout that bicarb is working for me. Mm. I, I just wouldn't see it. I'd, I would imagine I would take it before the sprint, at the end of a sprint stage. I wouldn't anticipate. It's mm. the same as – it's almost the same concept as like pre-cooling, you know. Mm. You can pre-cool and you might have a benefit for the first 5, 10, 15 minutes. Mm. But by that – 45th minutes it's, it's the effect is gone yeah so i mean i mean if you look at what thomas is saying it almost feels that he's obviously not making an excuse because he does say that Roglic wrote a brilliant time trial and therefore he deserved to win but i guess when you're at that level you if you just fe- if you're feeling a bit low you're going to look for something to blame to some extent and if the bike yeah, hop is course. something new you're going to say well it's the bike hop it could have just been the course it could have been a bad day all sorts of things yeah and i mean I, there's no I evidence if you surveyed the 158 or no it was less fewer than that in the jira because of all the covid withdrawals if you've surveyed the 120 on cyclists at the same point of that course guarantee you no one says my legs were good because yeah. remember that that must be that must be one of the worst climbs that's ever been ridden in a professional cycling race yeah yeah. In terms of its gradient and its length. 
Yeah. So I I don't know. I just think maybe it's almost tongue in cheek. I don't know. But mm. I could think of fifty things to blame before I got to bike up. Yeah. In that context, age being another one. <laughs> yeah, age and twenty days of hard racing yeah. and defending a lead against a guy who's trying to get it off. Uh, just yeah. for me, mm. no, not not buying it. Yeah. And and again, it's not. Well, he's, like, just, he's just ruined Merton's product, though, by saying that it potentially <laughs> well, assuming he's on that. Maybe they, yeah, were, on maybe the, maybe they were on the Rennies. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, it's just, you know, unless unless you make... Because the time trial, I mean, what, what Th- Thomas is trying to do there is hold 410 watts for 45 minutes. Yeah. You're not accelerating. You're not sprinting. You're not taking it up to 700 watts in order to attack. It's not even a bicarb challenge, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You're actually at... Or below threshold, not above it. So, mm. anyway, not yeah. buying it. There we go. Right, so onto more cycling stuff, and this is obviously a very sad moment in the world of uh, cycling. Gina Maida, mm. um, who died at the Tour de Suisse on a descent, and there's been lots written about it. There's been some comments from Remco Venepool about the course itself. Um, a very sad moment, and it's always very sad when a top professional rider. We've seen this in the past, you know. I think um, I think it was Cassi, was it Cassi, Cassi or Cassatelli many years ago in the Tour uh, de France. Armstrong's teammate, yeah, Cass, Cassatelli, yeah, Cassatelli, and uh, he crashed on one of the descents. And when you watch some of the stuff on these big tours, um, and particularly on the descents, it is just absolutely unbelievable how that has changed. And we just mentioned Tom Pitcock a while back. Mm. It is interesting that if you look at the way that cycling has happened, and if you listen to the cycling podcast, they'll confirm this. Cycling has become a sport that just doesn't, in the old days, it was about who climbed the fastest, and then whoever the best climber was and the best time trialist was, that person would generally be the Tour de France champion. Now it's become a science of descending as well. And we saw this with Chris Froome, with his different methods of descending, which are now being banned and changed. But a guy like Tim Pit- uh, Tom Pitcock actually uses descending as an attack tool. Mm. It's Venipool comes out saying that the course itself could have finished on the climb, that they shouldn't have included the descent. But in a way, it then takes away from what the sport has become because descending is now a skill set. That, plus the fact that Mado wasn't racing that descent to win a stage, right? Was he in the break? Yeah, but they'd yeah. been caught, and and, mm. and they were actually by that that stage the main GC race had gone past all of those breakaways, and Ayuso mm. was up the road. Mm. And remember, Ayuso went over the top of that climb like about a minute ahead of the chase pack, and he actually advanced his lead on the descent. And I was watching it, like while I was like on the bike, and you know they they do that classic shot they use it all the time where they show the motorbike speedometer as the motorbike's behind the guy, and it was yeah. 109 k now. That was Ayuso. Oh. And it, it was a frightening descent. And Maida was somewhere near. That's why there was no footage of it and so on. And I remember then seeing on Friday that Maida died. I mean, it's just an awful, awful thing mm. to have happen. But, and, and I understand then, obviously, there's the reaction. You can finish it. Of course, you can finish it on the top of the final climb. But there'd still be mountain descents before the final climb. So yeah. do you, if you're going to say no finish down, then do you have none at all? Now you've got no mountain. Mm-hmm. Unless you only ever go up one side of one mountain on a stage, so I don't, I don't think that is a viable solution. I understand the reaction to it, and the cyclists are the ones taking the risks. Of course, they're entitled to express it, but it's, it's not, it's not a viable, in my opinion, solution. And it's not, I don't think it's directly relevant because I, I, I can't see Maida on the limit on that descent. He didn't need to be on mm-hmm. that day. So, 
the point is that these accidents can happen even when you're not racing down the descent. So therefore, the, fixing the racing situation is not the solution. You know, yeah. you know, what I'm getting it. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I heard it debated as well on that um, the move where it was um, behind Renil and Spencer Martin talking about it and saying, "Do you have protective clothing?" Well, <laughs> that's that's even less plausible. Mm. Uh, you can't do that. Downhill mountain bikers probably take more risks, but they, they wear those spinal boards. It's yeah. crazy. Like, oh, yeah. They're very well protected. So these guys are not protected at all yeah, for sure. doing it. Then I'm thinking about other things. I was like, is, is, the, is the speed, the increased speed of the descending to blame? Now, when we say increased speed, this alludes to what we were casually discussing before I thought we were recording on this, the same show. Like, there's no doubt they're descending faster than they used to, even without the intention to descend faster, right? Because the bikes are different. They're more aero, yeah. You've got more aero bikes, you've got disc brakes that allow you to brake later and therefore enter hairpins and, sh and corners faster than you would have done. And I would imagine that a typical descent, let's say the one that we saw from Pidcock in, in Unchained, mm. episode five, is being done aside from him intentionally going fast, I'd imagine most of the other guys are also going faster than they would have done it five, 10 years ago on the previous bikes. Mm. Would, I don't know, would you agree? Yeah, I would agree with that, yeah. Narrow yeah. handlebars, the aero cockpits, you know, mm. of the bikes. No, the, the aero, particularly the technology around I think, that. Yeah. I think that is significant. So could could the UCI, because, okay, I'm not going to propose this, but like this is where my thinking is like, could you have a speed limit? To try and make it safer. Well, I no. suppose they have done that by trying to ban. Well, they well, have banned sitting on top of the top tube like it, exactly. So they have done something to curb the speeds. Plus, plus the control of the bike, because I don't mm. think that I've never. I can't get my body into that position. Only no. my mates, I mate Simon can. Yes. I can't. I don't fit between the saddle and, and yes. the. <laughs> I've let, yes. My back and hamstrings are nowhere near flexible yeah. enough. But yeah, and and it's a that's a control stability thing. So then there's an interesting thinking around. And the handlebars, which are considerably narrower now than they used to be, right? Mm. And you know, mountain bike handlebars are wide. Why? Stability and control. Mm. Is there a, is there a limitation that maybe needs to be put on how narrow those bars can be? They move the they move the brake hoods in now. They angle them so that you can effectively be in a time trial position when you're off on a. Which they're looking at it, banning that as well. Is that stable? I don't know. Yeah. I was listening to the Escape Collective podcast. Guy called Ronan McLaughlin was talking about it, and he was saying he was experimenting with it. And he says it definitely can be more aero, but he found it difficult to reach the brake levers in that position. Mm. Could that be a factor? Of course. <laughs> like, I mean, there's other things they could do, and I'm not suggesting this. I'm just chucking ideas out. They could restrict the size of the front chainring if mm. they really wanted to, because down a six or seven percent gradient and a sort of 58 on the 60 on the front you could get to 100 mm. if you limit that to 48 they're not hitting 100 they hit 90 does that save the risk maybe i'm, I'm sure that's part mm. of why it's done in the juniors mm. is to limit the speed on the on the descents so there's stuff they could do but i mean for me looking at it and obviously it's like really tragic and luckily they are rare enough that we can mm. talk about them in isolation, like Maida, and you talk about the Casatelli, there have been a couple of others as well, right? Yeah. But if you, I, I still think one of the most interesting and informative exercises for the sport to do, and it might be hypothetical because I don't know if this data exists, is actually catalog how many crashes there are per 100 Ks of cycling in a race. And then try and understand the risk factors for those accidents. You know, like you're going to have. In this year's Tour de France, what's it, 22 teams, eight guys each. Is that right? Yeah, something like that, yeah. 
each riding 3,400. Okay, some don't finish. But collectively, the, the whole Tour de France will involve 550,000 kilometers worth of cycling. Mm. Luckily, we see a death every 20 years. So that's, <laughs> that's every 10 million Ks of, of yeah. Tour de France cycling, we see a death, which yeah. shows you a couple of things. One, these guys are really good. Yeah, because they, to, they have got the skills. They are so good at it. Because like, mm. in that situation, you'd think, geez, it'd be more common than it is. And it's secondly, it shows you that cycling on public roads with cars is considerably more dangerous than <laughs> cycling among professional cyclists when you're a professional cyclist. But then it would be really interesting to say, okay, but it, we care a lot about a crash like the one that, that took Maida's life because we, we must. Yeah. Even if it's one in 10 million, you have to try and prevent it because it's literally fatal. But we also care about the crash that puts a guy out for one week with a concussion care about the crash that puts a guy out for a couple of months with a broken wrist like Pogaccia. Mm -hmm. You care about the crash that puts a guy out for many months like the one that took Teo Gagan Hart out in the Giro d'Italia. So it would be really interesting, I think, to ask a question about like what causes the crash? When do they happen and how severe are they? Do most crashes happen on the flat roads because of wind? Do they happen in the front third, middle third, back third of the peloton? Do they happen on descents? I suspect probably not. But to really get, the point I'm trying to get at is to really get to the bottom of this in order to try and find a solution, you first have to describe the problem far better than I think they, they currently have. Mm -hmm. You know, so nobody really knows the incidence of accidents in the Tour de France. I mean, 100, look, so for instance, you'll see 10 crashes a day mm -hmm. that affect 200 cyclists a day, maybe. But what's effect? Some guys just have to break really hard. Other guys end up in a ditch with broken bones and mm. very serious injuries. And I don't know how you solve the cycling safety problem until you understand the cycling safety issue. <laughs> yeah. And then once you describe the incident, and this is the public health model that we use, for instance, in rugby to try and manage concussion, is once you understand how often something happens, you ask why it happens. And once you know why it happens, you target the solutions to address why it happens. Mm. And that's the only thing. And you can't so, jump into the solutions until you understand what's happening before because that, yeah. you, because you're and I mean, guessing, there's a desire and, to find that out because if it was a an epidemic of crashes all the time on the similar type terrain exactly then you could look at our bike is bike technology affecting it etc etc yeah. but at the moment there probably isn't a desire correct to look at that so yeah. our, so the most basic question is are crashes more common on the descent leading into the finish line or the mm. descent leading into the second last climb now that's middle of the stage. Mm. Maybe maybe they are 47% more likely to occur in the final 10 kilometers of a stage because of a combination of fatigue and race tactics and race demands, in which case Evanapool's point has a statistical backing to it, you know? Yeah. And maybe you've got to then think about it. Maybe you can even start to characterize what does the descent into a town look like? How many hairpins? Be because descending Alpe d'Huez is really safe because there's so many hairpins that you never get up to speed. Yeah. It's actually, it's actually safer, right? Yeah, it's those that, long, straight descents. It's those long, straight ones, which then have one or two little flicks, right, left, right, left, and then an hairpin out of nothing when you were going 105 and you have to get down to 35. <laughs> but, if, but you could characterize, maybe there's a way to characterize the risk profile of a descent based on its speed and its number of transitions. You know, like I'm sure Formula One does that when you design tracks. There's probably a safety thing that says you can't have this turn off this pace off this speed you know but again everyone's guessing because no one's as far as i know ever characterized it 
Mm. So that that to me would be the first interesting thing is, do bikes with narrow handlebars crash more? <laughs> it's not the bike that crashes. Do cyclists on bikes with very narrow handlebars crash more frequently than cyclists with wide handlebars? Mm. Yes or no? Yeah. Until you know that, you might solve a problem that doesn't exist. Yeah. So figure out what you're trying to solve, and then then you know that you can design solutions. Mm. So until, yeah, I mean. There's always going to be descents. There's always going to be some element of danger, and in in sport, in all sports, that probably applies. And and Michael Rasmussen actually wrote a piece which was in Danish, and I've got a Google translated version, which always (laughs) always leaves a little bit to the imagination. But the point that Rasmussen is basically making is that cyclists are going to take descents. This is what they do. They it's it's just so deep in the riders. This is literally a quote from this article. That's what you do. It's about coming first. For the same reason, Rasmussen has no doubt there will also be deaths in cycling in the future. It's it's just it's a yeah. tough sport, you know, it's and it's very sport, sad when it happens like this. But if if the authorities were serious about risk reduction, they would they would systematically try and understand how often do things happen, why do they happen, and then and then try and solve them. Yeah, because yeah. it's again, and maybe that's a segue into. We've got other news stories related to risk in this podcast. It's like no one, no one needs to. You don't. No one wants zero risk. I don't yeah. think the cyclists want zero risk. I must. I mean, we 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 had hardly describe us as anything like. But I love descending Chapman's Peak. Yes, there's an element where you just push yourself just a little bit yeah, more yeah. than you're like, comfortable with. Can I? With. Can I see? If, can yes. I go three seconds faster? <laughs> no, no, I can't. Actually, yes. I'm terrified. Um, <laughs> You see, okay, it's a tailwind. Today I'm going to go for it because mm. I can get to 75 down Sekabosi instead of the usual 68, yeah? Yeah, yeah? Why? Because it's fun. Yeah. Like, yeah. if you took the risk away, it would cease to be fun. Yeah, for sure. And even if these guys are in races and they're not looking for fun like we do on our Saturday morning coffee ride, they're still, I'm sure there's still an element in them that wants this to be there. Mm. The so, only- so it's not about zero risk. It's about reducing risk to what is acceptable. And until the sport understands what's causing risk, I don't know how they can ever answer that. The only thought, final thought that I have on this, and it's kind of removed slightly from the professional peloton, but one of the issues I often have, and there's been stories written about this in the past, is on Strava, there are segments which are descending segments. And there has been cases of people trying to get kings mm. and queens of the mountains on these Strava segments and actually dying in the process of doing that. And I think in principle, um, it's controversial, but I do think that there should be something on Strava which limits segment leaderboards on segments where there are big descents. They do that, don't they? I thought they some, did. Some of, them, some of them are, but I think you can still, I, I think there should be a place where if, you're, if the segment is, you know, a drop of more than 5%, over a given time, that it should be, it should be not a segment. You mm. can't do a segment if it's a descent, um, because it, it it encourages people to do that sort of thing, and particularly when you're dealing with amateurs, mm. and potentially people are looking to get, you know, that it's queen of the mountains, king of the mountains. It's about climbing. That's where, therefore, you should have something that, at the very worst, can be a flat road, but I don't think you should be rewarding for people who, for going down hills fast purely because. I don't think it's safe. And there's been some interesting debates around this because Strava, in fact, has been taken to court in the past because they've been sued because they are not preventing people from doing that. And they've won because there was a disclaimer saying that, well, you take responsibility for your own riding. 
But yeah. again, it's it's a it's a it's a well, very interesting topic for debate. Well, you're right. I mean, in that situation there, like they're not just minimizing risk. The the existence of leaderboards, even if it's not a real competition, yeah. still incentivizes the risk taking behavior. Yeah. So that's yeah. I mean, I, I've I've definitely seen rides that I've done where segments are not eligible for leaderboards because they're descents. Yes, there are. I think it depends on the country as well, to be honest. I, I think, think that's the some, case because it's, yeah. I, I've not seen it in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. You know, like Seiko for instance, for those in you know, Cape Town, is a straight flat one. So like, okay, maybe you can excuse it. But I still, I'd still say there shouldn't be a descending record in Seiko Yeah, yeah. Certainly not on Chapman's Peak because, I mean, we've seen people go over the side of the barriers. Yeah especially when it's a bit wet and someone doesn't know the road and whatever. So, yeah, I, I, I could see that. And if Strava was really clever with its algorithm, it would also stop <laughs> comms and leaderboards where there are multiple intersections along the comm. Yes. Because guys guys yeah. will fly through red lights because they're on, a good, they're on a good time. Yeah, I know a yeah. few of those too. We go across intersections. Yes. Just encourages pretty bad behavior. Yeah, no, it's Absolutely. bad. No, no, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. Uh, Anyway, it's a horrible t subject to talk about because it's a human life that was ended in a sports event, and um, in the case of in the case of Maida, and it's it's just it's just awful. And you know, if, again, if you're talking about this every year, the, the sport's existence is in peril. And fortunately, it's not that common. But there's definitely some things they might look at in a little bit more systematic way. I think. Yeah. Just, uh, I know we've got a lot of, to get through here, but just a, a, a sort of final topic on on the on the cycling. There was a great uh, debate on the Twitter sphere with uh, Lance Armstrong this week. He was going to do an interview with Kate and Jenna. Mm. And uh, I wish it was a cycling topic, but go on. <laughs> yes, it's probably not a cycling topic, but it is. It involves a cyclist of former repute. Yes. But, um, <laughs> so. There's a moment where you see Lance being interviewed in the car while he's traveling to Caitlyn Jenner's house to interview her, to interview him, her, her, around um, sport and, and about, and obviously we're waiting to hear that podcast because it's obviously part of an interview podcast that he's doing. But he talks about, and this is what I find quite amusing because he talks about the fact that he talks about cancel culture. Yeah. And he mentions himself as a, as a victim of cancel culture. Yeah, he does of course, imply that. He does yeah. sort of imply that. But that, the apps, the comments on Twitter from from him saying that were absolutely brutal. I mean, whether you're a supporter of Lance Armstrong or you're not a supporter of Lance Armstrong, he gets absolutely nailed by pretty much everybody on Twitter saying, "Well, you weren't cancelled, you cheated." So it wasn't a case of you were cancelled; you, yes. you were you were literally cheating in the sport. So you can't claim to be cancelled. It, it's and, not the right term. And I'm now type. This is from the viewer's perspective. I'm now typing this on a YouTube clip that I think, and I actually just want to check this now has now been viewed 20 million times. <laughs> yes. It shows <laughs> so, you what a good debate it is. So, yeah, I mean, geez, I wish some of the scientific stuff I've tried to like explain could get 20 million views. Maybe we wouldn't be in this mess. Sorry, not 20 million, 21,000. Oh, there you go. Geez, okay. I was only off by a factor of 1,000. Yeah, no, Sorry, it's folks. It's not quite as big as we thought. My bad. That's all the old zeros. They don't count anyway. Um but the point is, like, he's got a podcast with a massive following. He's got 3 million followers on Twitter. It's not cancelled. That said, that whole debate, like, eventually circled back around. And because it's a transgender issue now, obviously, I, and I'm not going to listen to these interviews. He's, he's done one with Caitlyn Jenner. He's done one with Roger Pilker. I don't know who else he's got lined up in this series. But I'd be very surprised if, they, if these folk reveal anything new that hasn't been 
sort of shown in the light in the last three or four years. Yeah. I suppose <laughs> if there's Tyson. if there's any um, upside to it, it's, it means the light is spread wider and maybe more people will see that this debate and this issue exists. But I'd be concerned about like a guy like Roger saying things on that podcast about the science of testosterone suppression that can't then be challenged because mm. the guy's not a scientist and I think he's actually dishonest about what the science shows mm. as well or at the very best inaccurate when he when he explains what the science shows so I, I don't know but I mean it's interesting that Armstrong's dived into it on Twitter like a lot of people as you say they dismiss they dismiss him saying you shouldn't even have an opinion on this who cares yes. you know what I mean uh, and I don't understand that like Peter Flax who you'll know as a journalist was the yes. same and eventually I got tagged in a comment about it saying like this is now the kind of unsavory company you keep. These are the people you're forming an alliance with. Mm. <laughs> the thing is, though, it's like if something's true, then it's true. Mm. It doesn't matter who's believe you're it, saying it. It, it doesn't. Yeah. There are words on a page eventually. Mm. At some point in history, there are going to be words on a page or a soundbite mm. belonging to a voice. And the fact that that voice was one of the most notorious cheats in history and bullied a lot of people and so on doesn't make the content of those words illegitimate. Okay. It's ridiculous to me that people are now saying this is like the alliance and therefore your scientific view is tarnished mm. by the fact that Lance agrees. Lance is the least of the like people that, dis that agree that I find distasteful. Like mm. some of the Fox News guys in the US, mm. Tucker Carlson and all these guys, I think they're, they're just horrendous people. Mm. <laughs> they agree. <laughs> it doesn't make them wrong. Yeah. Like the facts are the facts. Like male advantage is real. Male biology creates performance advantages. Women's sport needs to be closed. Like that's if Tucker Carlson came out and said tomorrow, I believe the world is round. Mm. I'm not going to disagree with him because he's Tucker Carlson and he has a set of other opinions I disagree with. You know what mm. I mean? Yes. And I find I find this debate so like unbelievably infantile that now you lose credibility because Lance the cheat mm. agrees with you on something, mm. or because. Someone else, Joe Papp, who's a listener to this of this podcast as well, who's a former doper, also agrees. Mm. Unsavory characters, like, doesn't mean I agree with Papp's doping. It doesn't mean you know. Anyway, yeah, it's just it's just absurd to me. This the as way the I whole debate that, has that, gone. That interview hasn't come out yet. Um, I think that I think it has. It has, it? yeah, because the, has, the yeah. second one now with Roger Pilkazat, and that's okay. the one where he talks that's about the DSDs and misrepresents the science of testosterone suppression and so on. Because so. I've seen interviews with Caitlyn Jenner, of course, formerly Bruce Jenner, multiple Olympic medalist in the in the decathlon, but yeah, he, he, he's the one who defends women's sport very much. So yeah, actually um, says trans women should not be allowed yeah, into absolutely. women's sport. So yeah. You, people expect him to say the opposite, but and as I gather, in fact, defend it. Yeah, and the way Armstrong frames it in that intro piece is he's going to get a series of views. So he's obviously spoken to Jenna, spoken mm. to Roger Pilker, mm. who's going to, I guess, well, I know he's going to offer the alternative view that we should allow self-ID into, into women's sport. I'm told by people in the States that he's going to speak to an athlete, one of the women who swam against Leah Thomas. I don't know. He's At some stage, I assume he'll speak to an American scientist about it, probably that um, mm. evolutionary biologist from Harvard who's who's been more outspoken over in the US, maybe. So I don't know what the series will reveal. I think it's, you know, I, th I think it's good you have these discussions and you can't, and then and then I would I would just love for people to agree to disagree sometimes. Mm. <laughs> it's just like, you know, again, with but not necessarily on this subject. No, I not mean, on we, this, not this necessarily. Not, this is, like, yeah. and, and like with Peter Flax, for instance, like Flax writes a lot of stuff about cycling safety, yeah. covers 
all the cyclists who get mowed down by mm. cars and speeding, drunk drivers and stuff. Mm. And his stuff's, and that's good, I think. Yeah, yeah, he, sure. he represents the cycling community in a way that I respect. And like, I think he's writing, like, I'm not going to now discard everything he said about that because he disagrees with mm. me on trans issues. It's stupid. Yeah. No, <laughs> like, sure. I just, and so, so it's be interesting to see. Like, what I, so, so on this whole debate, and we've said it so many times, is, you can have the opinion that trans women should be allowed in women's sport. I would disagree. You can have your, you can state your opinion if you wish to. But don't lie about the basis for it. Just mm. say you're making a choice. You're either choosing inclusion like, over fairness and safety or you're choosing fairness and safety over inclusion. Yeah. But you're making a choice. And stop deceitfully framing it as both at the same time, like some sports are continuing to do. Yeah. yeah. So that's where that is. And I mean, just on that, it's been a while, obviously, since we did podcast but i'm losing count of how many medals places strava segments and titles are going to trans women in cycling mm. it's been actually amazing like i can't believe there's a there's an account on twitter that's documenting all these cases and i it's it's amazing how many there are i can't i cannot believe really? the numbers. we often we, we talked about this case we were saying well how many transgender people are going to become a top you know be competing in the women's category but actually, it is almost becoming an issue because I never thought that it would. To be honest, it's yeah, sort and, of and again, to, to some degree, we're we're now um, placed ourselves in the flow of confirmation bias. We're we're hearing about the cases because we've spoke about the cases. You know, yeah. like there are lots of people who haven't who wouldn't know they're happening. So I'm not sure what the prevalence is. Mm. But two years ago, there was definitely not as much conversation, and there certainly weren't as many trans women in women cycling as they are now i mean the most prominent perhaps being austin killips who won that tour of uh the gila i think it's called tour of the gila in the us um Mm -hmm. and that kicked off the uci now looking apparently at a review of its own policy Mm -hmm. because i think again like seeing is believing (laughs) a lot of people were told this is imminent this will happen they said, oh, it's an imagined problem. You're just justifying your transphobia mm. <laughs> and your bigotry using this hypothetical future thing that'll never happen. Well, mm. now it's clearly happening. The, the true prevalence remains unknown, but it's, I'm surprised at how often it's now coming up. Um, For every, every and, woman or female athlete, legitimate female athlete that is being beaten, it's potentially a career, a, a professional life, all those sort of things that are affected yeah, by that. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's, mm. again, no one knows that, tr- and you go on social media, you find yourself unwittingly maybe f- placing yourself into an echo chamber where you're going to have that one voice amplified and so on. So I'm very well aware that I'm probably seeing more of them than, not as the reality, but I'm, I'm seeing them yeah. where someone outside my particular chamber wouldn't. But... But even in the mainstream media, there's a conversation now that wasn't being held. And Lance Armstrong is the latest person, high-profile person, to weigh in on that conversation. And I think that's good. Yeah. Other people say it's bad and he should be quiet and stay in his lane. But why? Mm. If 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 you talk about it and it's true, then then like present the facts and let people debate them and discuss them, and then agree to disagree with knowledge as opposed to like this either ignorance or malicious dishonesty <laughs> i'm just not sure he's staying in his lane to be honest in my opinion as much as i agree with what he will probably um 
realize and through his discussions and I understand the process he's going through to discover the truth and potentially come out with the right result is that his credibility is somewhat lacking in this sort of space. Therefore, I kind of think, well, there's a lot of other people that could make a difference here. People might listen to him, but really is he credible enough? No, I'm I'm not interested Um, in Armstrong's particular view. No, that's true. It's not necessarily, it's people he's interviewing. Yeah, Yeah. and in fact, I'm not interested in even their, even who they are, I'm interested in what they say. It's the mm. content, not the person. Mm. That's the thing. Armstrong could write a thesis on this. Mm. And if the arguments are solid and good, then I would agree with Armstrong. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, because it's the, the quality of the argument. In the same way that if I say something here that's garbage and someone calls me out on it, like I don't want to be evaluated because of who I am. I want to be evaluated for the quality of what I said. Yeah. So I really don't care whether if you you could be a you could be a financial advisor with an opinion on biology, mm. and you might be more credible than some biologists. I'm not going to disregard you because you deal with money, not humans. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just silly to me to say I'm not going to engage mm. with you because of who you are. Yeah. Let me rather listen to you, and then I might, based on how you construct your argument, I might explain why I disagree with you in part because of who you are. Yeah, but not not first. That's a good life philosophy. Yeah, don't <laughs> shut don't shut the guy down because of what he did in an unrelated sphere. Mm. Let me rather hear you out. And if Armstrong was to let's say, and I'm making this up on the go here, if Armstrong was to justify, for instance, doping by other women in order to compete with trans women. I might say, oh, but you're Lance Armstrong, the doper, right? Obviously, you'd say that. Now I bring his history in. Mm-hmm. I evaluate his argument, then I evaluate who, who it is in order to try and contextualize it. But if the argument is good, I don't care who makes it. Yeah. So, anyway. There we go. Well, we've disagreed on something in the last 24 hours, and that was the spelling of spelled versus spelt. <laughs> and the reason why I'm bringing that into the conversation, and for those of you that really want to know the difference between spelt and spelled, is that spelt is the English version of the past tense of spell, and the American version is spelled. Although there is some debate about that, but I've investigated it fully. Ross disagrees with me well, because he spent a lot of time, well, he spent a recent lot of time in Boston. <laughs> So I'm, I think you might be a bit biased as to American spelling versus English spelling. I've been, I've been captured. <laughs> What's the line from Hangover? Las Vegas has him. Yes, the Google guy. Boston so, has I him. mean, without going into the details of, of the correct spelling of spelt or spelled, you were in Boston a couple of, well, almost a couple of days from now. And again, it was a, a lot of stuff around concussion. There's been some stuff coming out around this concussion issue with some of the research that's yeah. now coming through um, from American football, for instance. Mm, um, yeah. just, just tell us a bit more about that. I think it's fair to say that the, the one significant controversial and shared problem of all the contact and collision sports, so American football, rugby union, rugby league, AFL, uh, even lacrosse potentially. I mean, <laughs> boxing should be there, but for some reason mm. seem not to get the same scrutiny, even though the objective is concussion. <laughs> uh, even equestrian and football. Around the world, they've all faced inquiries and significant questions, legitimate questions around the long-term safety of playing the sport because of the head impacts that it incurs. And as you know, listeners, my main job is world rugby and I work on the player welfare side. If I, if I had to give a job description in one sentence, it's to help provide evidence that will make better player welfare decisions. And so obviously the prevention of concussion, but now also these repetitive head impacts because mm. it's become increasingly thought that you know you can take a blow to the head 
but knocks you out or causes clinical indications. That's a concussion. But you'll have many more that don't quite reach that threshold but are still causing damage, you know, that maybe isn't obvious. And how many of those are safe? Well, that's the debate, right? Mm. So going back 50 years now, more, 70-odd years, Condition was described in boxes, which became known as punch drunk syndrome. You've probably heard of that. Yeah. Where too many blows to the head caused later in life problems, which resembled being drunk, slurring of words, loss of balance, cognitive impairment. And then in the 2000s, that, that same, and like let's sort of italicize that word, condition was identified in American football players when an autopsy on a player's brain revealed neuropathological damage changes in that brain. And since then, a number, like we're talking well into the hundreds of American football players have donated their brains for these autopsies. And the prevalence of this neuropathology is now thought to be quite common. Quite how common is one of the many unknowns at this point, Mm. because the brain bank, that's literally a place where you deposit, well, you you say, when I die, the brain may take, this bank may take my brain and do research on it. It's like donating a body to science, except mm-hmm. this brain bank is, is, there's no doubt, preferentially getting the brains of players who are symptomatic, who have problems. So I'm a 45-year-old retired football player in the US, and I started to notice issues, and I say, I'm donating my brain to, to this research. So, so, so there's a bias in the sample they're getting. Mm-hmm. They don't have the brains of 6,000 American football players from that period in order to establish the true existence of this condition. You know, maybe maybe 95% of people don't have it and they're seeing the 5% who do. That's always a problem. Yeah, makes sense, right? Makes sense, yeah. So among the many unknown issues are the prevalence of this, but it became known as CTE, which is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Chronic meaning from repeated. Mm. Traumatic meaning blows, I guess, implying blows. Encephalopathy meaning pathology of the brain. And it was characterized by these pathologists who then described very specific lesions and biochemistry and changes in the brain that distinguish it, for instance, from Alzheimer's and so on. This is another disputed area. Some neuropathologists say that it very much doesn't look different. But anyway, I'm not a, let me not go out of my lane on that. The problem with it is that it's only really identifiable after death. There's no living diagnosis of CTE. So instead, there's traumatic encephalopathy syndrome which is now the living condition Mm. which is based upon did you have a history to head impacts when you played your sport and do you present with a certain set of symptoms and cognitive decline and so on and what sport is grappling with is the degree to which these repeated head impacts cause the condition contribute to the condition are correlated with the condition or are associated with the condition how do you diagnose it? And then what do you do with the player who has it? So that's in a nutshell what every sport has to deal with. Now, last year in November, we had our medical conference in Amsterdam. And we heard from a couple of speakers on this issue. But we'd invited parties from both sides of the debate. Because there's some people literally on one extreme who say that CTE doesn't exist. There are lit- like people who deny the, even the existence of this and then on the other side, there are people who say that CTE is caused only by head blows. And therefore, they want, for instance, contact sport banned in people under the age of 18, that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So we tried to have a meeting in Amsterdam last year. We got a couple of people. We tried to invite people from the other side. They either declined because they don't want to share <laughs> the stage with certain other people. That's the kind of like tensions that exist in this Some space. Politics. 
uh, or or they were unavailable because of time constraints and and conflicting schedules and so on. So we said no problem. Like we are committed to hearing from this, and so the meeting in Boston was the second part of that. It was a, it was about going to Boston, which is where many of these world authorities are, and giving them the opportunity to present to us their latest research, their findings, their theories, their solutions. I mean, you want you want the experts to also be part of the solution, right? So we did that over a couple of days, had this, uh, I mean, it was eight different presentations from experts on pathology issues, epidemiology issues, the neuro, neuropsychology of the conditions. The, and out of that eventually will come a revision of, of World Rugby's position statement, which was initially written in 2014 around this condition, not just CTE, in fact. In fact, I'd be quite keen to underplace the focus on CTE and talk about all the neurodegenerative diseases because there's now evidence in football and rugby that the risk of these conditions is higher when you play it. And so, anyway, that's a, I'm, I'm, I'm waffling a little bit now, but that was why we were there, is to listen to the experts, gather the evidence with a view to saying, oh, what do we do moving forward, you know? So in this this paper that's come out recently, um, which is a bit, quite an extensive, it says leveraging football accelerometer, American football accelerometer data to quantify associations between European repetitive head impacts and chronic traumatic encephalopathy. encephalopathy. Yeah. <laughs> Say it again for me. I don't know if encephalopathy. encephalopathy. <laughs> I think I just said what you said. Yes, I know exactly. It's yeah. a bit like Pugacha. Um Anyway, but I mean, that, that, it's interesting there because there's been talk about creating, putting accelerometers into mouth guards yeah. rugby, yeah. Um, to look at that impact of it. I mean, that that bit of research. What is the inevitable conclusion about it? Does it, it does it end up coming with what you would expect? It's, it's rather un- inconclusive. Yeah, it's not the first study to do this. The, the, a similar group of authors published something a couple of years back where they looked at the same thing. But th- this is a really interesting study, and it's a big study, because what they do is they've got, obviously, they've got all these brains, and they know the identity of those players. And they mm. say, okay, what position did this player play in American football? Now, here's where I'm walking a little bit on thin ice. But was it, was it a wide receiver? Was it a running back, a quarterback, a lineman, tight end, etc.? And then they've got the data from these headaches. These, in, in their case, it's not mouth guard, it's helmets. Mm. Because until very recently, mouth guards didn't exist with the accuracy and the technology to do this. So they put it in the helmet, which is a little bit dicey because the helmet moves on the head. So it's not a true representation of what the head is doing. But still, it gives you some indication of how many hits and how large are these hits that a player in each position would take. So if you know the identity of John Smith... And you say, okay, John Smith played this position for this many years, and we know that that was X games. You know, per game, this is what that position typically experiences. That's what they ended up doing here. And they showed a relationship between the number of those hits and the degree to which the CTE was present and symptomatic. So was it mild, not symptomatic, severe, severity of it. So was it mild, moderate, or severe? And they showed a correlation between those. So if you read... If you read the paper, it basically says the very end is these findings implicate cumulative head impact intensity in in CTE pathogenesis, and it fed the, the the as I say previously published theory about there being a dose response. So in other words, the more doses you have of head impact, the more likely you are to develop the condition. Now, there are many many important scientific buts because. You're not measuring it directly. You don't have a representative cohort. There's a bias in the brains you have, which I mentioned to you earlier. So there's a lot yet to be done. But I think what it shows you is that any contact sport, and again, 
take this from where it's coming. You know that I work for World Rugby and my job for literally the last six, seven years has been how do we reduce head impacts mm. <laughs> is every contact sport has to answer the question is how can we reduce head impacts? Yeah. Because it's quite clear that that's what you have to do. Um, you know, and in 2015, we did that study in rugby and I spoke now about cycling. You've got to understand how often do crashes happen and why do they happen? We did that in rugby. We said, how often do concussions happen and how do they happen? Mm. What are the circumstances in which a concussion happens? And the reason we did that is to say, well, let's see how we can reduce them. Change the laws, change tackle technique, change the way that the game is played, lower the height. And that's been done now in, in the community game. So I would like to think that rugby is taking steps to limit exactly what this paper is highlighting is the problem, is head impacts in the game. Um, critics will say not enough of them and the steps are too small and too slow mm. but you know you've got to there's, there's a balance has to be found traditionalists will say the opposite that it began becoming and that's the really interesting game. that's the really interesting thing right yeah. is the voice of the people arguing against contact sports and, and 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 effectively saying how dangerous they are is almost never matched by the voice coming from the other side saying leave us alone we want to play the game we know it to be and at the beginning of the year, when England announced lowering the tackle height, that voice suddenly was amplified. <laughs> within within a few days, they got more than a hundred thousand signatures on a on a vote of no confidence in the rugby's governing body yeah. in England. And so then you say, actually, geez, we only ever hear this argument. We've never heard from the people who say, "Leave us alone. We we're happy with the risk." <laughs> you can't you can't let people take that. You know, it's just it's like Strava. You can't you can't just let people take that risk. Someone's got to step in and actually protect people from themselves. Mm. But the point remains that World Rugby and all the governing bodies of other contact sports have to straddle this position where you don't want to you can't sanitize the sport people people love the sport because of the contact if yeah. they didn't they'd play soccer <laughs> yeah. no offense to football fans but like there are other team sports is the point you yeah. play hockey you could play lacrosse you could play any one of a handful a dozen other team sports but they don't want that they want rugby why because they actually appreciate and want the contact mm. so you can't take it out of the game but you have to figure out how far can we reduce head exposure in the game without compromising what people want to play. And that's the challenge for all sports. And I think that was affirmed in Boston and it's not as though it was new, but it was an interesting experience to listen to people. Now, now there's all, there's going to be debate now about will the, will, will the contact sports acknowledge cause and if causality, you know, like the NIH last year said collisions. So they said repetitive in, impacts may cause CT. Okay. That's, a strong statement we've heard from epidemiologists who are experts in this area like when can you say something causes a condition as opposed to is associated with at what point in history were cigarettes associated with lung cancer as opposed to now known to cause lung cancer that's for most listeners and many people that that's a very academic conversation but it's, it's actually quite an important one and epi epidemiologists live and breathe in that space and they would say that you've got to be very careful. Like you can't yet say causes. You have to say is correlated with or is associated with or contributes to. Because there are other things also. You know, take a hundred people and expose them all to a condition, smoking. Not a hundred percent of them get a get lung cancer, right? right? Some don't. And some people who don't smoke get it. But it's it's still smoking still causes it. But there's a statistical anyway, I'm, I don't want to yeah, yeah. dive into the academic depths here. But we, we heard from epidemiologists who argue for why we should say causes. We heard from people who say, why well, you can't say causes. 
ultimately, from my position, like it's kind of irrelevant because the point is you still got to act the same way, yeah. which is to reduce the exposure to head impacts. Yeah. And yeah. like, and where, where it does become relevant is like the, the Lancet, which is one of the most respected scientific publications, has published something a couple of years back on Alzheimer's and dementia, and they recognize 12 contributing factors. Head impact is one of those, right? So it's there. It's like acknowledged by Lancet. So it'd be foolish to reject it. But there's 11 others. Cognitive decline, um, depression, anxiety, lack of sleep disorders, and, and poor quality of sleep, and so on. Dietary factors; those are modifiable. And so, I think there's a there's a strong element to which the sports might also need to actually say, you know, what we can actually contribute to prevention of these conditions in our rugby players by focusing on all the factors, not just one. And mm-hmm. I think the I think the f- narrow focus on just the one contributing factor has actually been to the detriment of the player. Mm-hmm. You're not taking the holistic look at it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But yet, yet when the sports try to do that, we've been criticized for playing whataboutry. Mm. It's not about that. It's about saying, can't change what happened to you when you played professional rugby between 2007 and 2016. But I can change what you're doing now with respect to your alcohol intake, your sleep, your quality of life, your food, you know, your stress, mm. your anxiety. Mm. And there's a, yeah. there's a significant element of it as well where... You get a guy at 31 who's forced to stop playing because of injury or illness or form or whatever it is, right? Doesn't want to. Got no fallback plan. Goes from being center of attention and part of a unit, a team, mm. to being out of that team. So there's there's already going to be a high prevalence, for instance, of depression and anxiety in, in a retired athlete. Those are contributors to cognitive decline. Yeah. So can you prepare players a little bit better and then reduce the burden of these conditions? I know of a handful of former players who have grown older in absolute terror that they're developing this CTE condition. And then they finally see a doctor and they're diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, treated with medication, guy's happy now, diagnosed with depression, diagnosed with anxiety, go to therapy, talk to someone, problem solved. And so the I, I, I do worry sometimes that the pendulum is so far over on the side of the, this is, you are de- you are doomed because of your repetitive head impacts, because of the sport you played, that you are going to develop. You have probable CTE. And it causes us to miss that actually these things are a little bit more complex than A equals B, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's, anyway, I'm talking now, this is all the questions. These are questions. Risk, there's a financial risk that, of course, these federations are looking at. We've seen... American football mm. being sued by former players because they feel they didn't do enough. That's why I think sports like rugby and world rugby are looking into this so that they can potentially avoid being sued later well, on in life. But also, the, the it's too, it's too late. It's too late. Every every one of those contact sports has got litigation now. Yeah, yeah. AFL's facing it. NRL, which is the Australian Rugby League, mm. Rugby League in the UK, World Rugby, England Rugby, Welsh Rugby, Irish Rugby, Scottish. Every sing, mm. every single one, you know, has got those questions to to answer. And that's why it's important that you constantly be led by the evidence and so forth i just and again i'm sort of saying what the questions are what will happen next out of the boston meeting Mm. is a is the writing of a position statement maybe uh some sort of like action plan comes out of i I don't know exactly but we'll see but the the point is you listen you see what the evidence is saying and what it allows you to say what it doesn't allow you to say but fundamentally you just have to say right we have to prevent unnecessary risk yeah now, at some point, people will reject it as being unnecessary. They'll say, no, actually, I dispute 
that what you're doing there is necessary. I don't think the risk is large enough and I want to, okay, fine. You know, and that's what, that's why boxing exists, right? Like the, the people know the risks. So as long as I, I honestly think if you communicate the risk to people, and this is where there's a problem because you can't communicate the size of the risk. No one really knows. You know, at one point, um, and in, in, in the papers early on, like 2012, 2013, I think it was, the, this Boston group published, they had 111 brains that had been donated by NFL and college football players. 110 of them had the signs of this neuropathological change. Cool. Now, does that mean that that's the true prevalence? Well, no, because there's 3,000 brains that they haven't seen. Mm. And because of the bias in how those brains, and they acknowledge all this in their papers, by the way. I'm not putting words in their mouth. They acknowledge that there's a, 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 a bias of obtaining these brains they would pin that prevalence at anything between 10 and 90 percent so you could you could literally go from one in 10 to nine in 10 people have this condition if you have it do you become symptomatic no one knows that so there's a lot of there's a lot of unanswered questions that people have to ask and there's a there's a medical responsibility to do it because again if you start telling people that they've got a progressive neurodegenerative disease when they're 50 something years old and as a consequence of your narrow focus on only that and you neglect the fact that there are other contributing factors you that's a big diagnosis to make right and that's why the medical fraternity has to be quite careful but not so careful that we just let this thing continue without and therefore in turn the sports community has to say we're going to try to get a grip on prevention here feels like it's going to be something that as you say is almost a guideline and that because that, that the science of this is going to be ongoing pretty much forever because i mean how how far are we in terms of getting real data from oh, world rugby tough. around accelerate accelerometers i mean that, that that must be yeah we we had our first papers accepted for publication last week on around the mouth the, around the data from accelerometers yeah right okay but so now, there, there is some data yeah, yeah but let's keep our expectations <laughs> low here because i'll tell you what has to happen now we, we've published this it's from the community game in new zealand and the elite game in the northern in europe basically mm. small in the, in the community game, it's a big set. It's like 860-odd players, wow. and thousands. And in the elite game, it's a smaller group set. It's 14. So we've got to obviously try and expand that, and we will. But now, now you okay, so now, for instance, I could tell you the average impact in the game, or, or let's say, for instance, and this is a finding, is that half of all tackles don't register a head acceleration event above 10 Gs. Half do. So half, half of tackles cause a head acceleration. Of that half... The average acceleration is 16 Gs and 3% exceed 40, 30 Gs. 1% exceeds 40 Gs, right? So, okay, so one in 100 tackles causes a 40 G impact. So what? You know, I was like, going to say, what's, what, what, exactly. what, what are you measuring it against? Exactly. Mm. What's the outcome of that? What's the clinical implication? In other words, how, long, take, how many Gs do you have to have to cause brain issues? Right. Can, now, can you imagine how long it's going to take yeah. to get that? That's going to take three or four generations of players wearing those mouth guards with longitudinal tracking in order to try and and that's mm. so, so we heard a couple of the experts in sure. boston are involved in this kind of research they, they're doing research on retired nfl players and they're doing cognitive tests on those players every few years it's called the nfl long study um there's other there, there are other longitudinal studies in the american college system called it's, it's called the care study the a care consortium and it's a it's a massive study that's now been going for 12 years i think it's going to take at least double that before you start getting these proper because just on the side of how the study needs to be done it has to be a cohort design you know you can't 
you can't just study the cases because then all you're ever studying is the people who have the condition of interest. You need a mm. control for them. Mm. And so it's either a case control or a cohort that you track into the future. So I'm going to start today. Let's say, let's say I could do this. I could start today with 350 professional rugby players around the world. By 2055, 32 years from now, they will be 50-something years old. And if I've, if I've analyzed them every five years, I can start relating their health situation then to what they then went through in their rugby playing career now. That's the study. That's the study design that eventually established that smoking causes lung cancer. As opposed to before, oh, all these people who showed up with lung cancer and the autopsies, they it's just unusually high number of them were smokers. Mm -hmm. We think that there's an association between smoking, but we couldn't say it caused it until we did that kind of study. But why can't you take a whole bunch of players into a lab and knock them around a bit and say, well, <laughs> you know, when, when, you, when we give you footages, we can see your brain doing that versus that, and therefore that's an acceptable amount of G's and that would be less. I mean, is that is that well impossible to to measure? <laughs> you could do it if you could I'm find the ethics. It. You could do it if you could find the ethics committee that would allow it. First of all, but even if you did, you know, the, to step you around a bit. The problem is, and this is what we're discovering, is that because and as we grow our data set to the mouth guards, this will become more apparent and answerable. Mm. Is when does a concussion occur? In other words, when does that forty G's doesn't always cause clinical outcomes. Sometimes a guy gets concussed at 32 Gs, and sometimes he doesn't get concussed at 65 Gs. We've, we've had the highest, highest, highest numbers are like approaching 100, right? Sometimes that doesn't cause a concussion. Mm. And nobody really knows why. It's probably got to do with where on the head it happened and the d degree to which it causes the head to rotate because that's now, remember the brain sits inside the skull. It's, like, it's almost like a table tennis ball in a glass of water, right? The brain rotates, the brain moves, there's shear forces and so on. Linear versus rotational. No one truly understands the, the head acceleration injury model. The NFL's got some very smart people working on it. We met with them in uh, May in New York. And we've got a lot of data and there's collaborations that we might explore, who knows, in the future with them and other sports to try and make that link. But the simple reality is that even if you did that in lab and you've got 100 players and you bashed them around like crash test dummies, you still wouldn't answer the question. Mm. It's 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 hell of a complex, mm. and it's going to take a long time, I think, to answer. Sure. Well, so, talking about that, so obviously you will rugby has done, and we've debated and talked about this in past podcasts around the tackle height, and as you've explained in past podcasts, once you are limiting the chances of heads butting against heads, you limit the chances of traumatic brain injuries happening. Yeah. But in a, in a recent um, uh, story, there was a match, uh, a league match between <laughs> these two youngsters, young teams, Bradford versus Leeds. Um, and what was interesting about that match is that they've decided to include the new laws about tackling below, was it below the shoulders? Uh, yeah, theirs is the sh they've moved below it the, to the armpit. So the armpits, in yes. rugby league, it used to be at the shoulders, you had to be below that line. So it was the head and neck were off limits, everything else right. was fine. They've literally moved it eight centimeters down, which so first, firstly, it's probably not enough of a change. But in, but anyway, but anyway, <laughs> what happened? That, they ended up having <laughs> twenty penalties in the first twenty minutes or something like that. So it, yeah. it, the game was stop start the whole time, and there were so many penalties that it, it was, almost became it, impossible. It was ruined. Yeah, but end, is that not just because players have got to adapt, especially it, young players have got to adapt to a new way of playing? Right, and that's what's that's what's so disheartening mm. is that that message, that lowering of the height for that competition that would have been communicated to them months in advance 
they would have been provided with materials explaining why it was changing, where it was changing to, and what the new decision-making process would look like. And yet the first time they were exposed to it, <laughs> 49 penalties, yeah. of which, am I, am I right, the numbers? I, I read this a while back. Yeah. 45 high-tackle penalties in one game. Yeah, it was actually a story in The Guardian. We'll put the link yeah. in, the, in the show notes. Yeah. So 45 times in a game. Now, the average, the average before that law change is like two. Mm-hmm. So that means that they've gone from two illegal tackles to 45 because of the law change, which means those coaches and those players have yeah, made... 57, actually. 57 penalties. Oh, wow. 49 of them were for high tackles. Okay, so 49. <laughs> so 49 occasions yeah. in that game, those players went into a tackle situation and did not make the adjustment that had been... Con- this wasn't sprung on them at the start of the game. At the moment of kickoff, fellas, by the way, I just want to let you know, the tackle height's lower. Mm. No, this was communicated months in advance with quite a strong, because I know the guy who runs the trial, a guy called Ben Jones at Leeds, really competent researcher. He's got a great team, and they would have worked with the officials, the coaches, everybody. And yet still, on 49 occasions, players went into tackle and didn't make the adjustment they needed to make. That's really disheartening, I think. And in fact, even in disheartening my... Disheartening because the players weren't able to adapt given fair warning or disheartening because they just they couldn't adapt? I mean, do you think it's just the players... You can definitely adapt. Yeah. You can definitely adapt. Because if you said to them, tackle below the waist, they'd tackle the sternum. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, you could make them adapt. So in other words, when they were training, potentially they weren't being you, coached correctly. Yeah, and we've spoken... Because mm-hmm. I was very worried about this when we when we started our tackle height reduction stuff. We Not I, we, we World Rugby. And we spoke with coaches and we said, like, is it plausible to ask players to tackle lower? And they said nine out of ten tackles that are high can be eliminated with better decision-making and better technique. If that wasn't the case and one out of ten was changeable and nine out of ten were inevitable, then the sport would be in major trouble. Mm. Because then it's an un- then it's a sport that causes unavoidable head contact. You, mm. That's a that's a big issue. Mm. But no, they said they said most tackles, the vast majority, can be modified. Yet in this study, like you know, you just can't see any indication of modification. So, mm. and again, it it was a frustration, and I'm sure it's been the same for the Australian Rugby League, where they've also tried to clamp down with harsher sanctions on high tackles. Is the coaches rejected? In part, they say, no, no, we see lots of concussions from low tackles. We're not buying into this. And no matter how much evidence you show them that the higher the tackle, the more the danger, they don't care. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, there's, it's, it's, part of it's change management, but part of it is actually just asking the community to come along this journey with us, you know? And maybe I'm naive to say, trust us, because we, we've, we've been considered and systematic and thoughtful about how we've gone about making these recommendations to lower the height and then the rugby community says no thanks anyway because now now you see the problem is they'll they've got this poor ref he's just, i mean and and courage the courage it must take a referee to just keep sanctioning it from the first to the last minute for the 49th occasion penalty yeah <laughs> i mean the poor probably guy. getting booed by the crowd massive abuse yeah. probably yeah. never blow another game in his yeah, life exactly and in wales they've even suggested that they're lowering the tackle well, that, to below the sternum well they're the latest country to do it yeah but that's that's lower than what we're talking about now yeah and that that's, might be that that might be what's required the armpit's not enough so the player enough, thinks yeah. it's like fine i'm i'm close enough and then they don't make the change so below the sternum is in other words below the rope cage yeah, you've yeah. got to get somebody at the waist yeah you've got to hit the belly that's yeah. that's what they're saying hit the bottom of the the ball in a normal carrying position or hit the belly 
or hit the hips, top of the hip bone, whatever it is, you know. And then, so so France did it, remember, like in 2018, 19, I forget, mm-hmm. 19. New Zealand announced the same thing, sternum in October last year. England announced waist beginning this year. They've subsequently changed it to bottom of the sternum. Ireland is bottom of the sternum. Scotland went bottom of the sternum. Wales is there. South Africa and is it just currently, a, at what level is that? It's, they're saying community game, and they all have the discretion to choose what that means. So in France, for instance, it's all but the top five or six divisions of rugby. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in South Africa, for instance, if they were to do it, the thinking was it would be everything up to our varsity cup. So it would be club, school, mm. club, adult, and school. And do you so, think, I mean, why has it not been taken right through to the professional game? <laughs> because essentially, I mean, yeah. I, I, maybe it's a difficult thing to ask you because you're so involved. In no, that's the right question. I, I guess to some extent, you, the, the, the pressure, if you're going to breed players that are wanting to play a professional game that has a different set of parameters, well, how do you breed players that are playing a different game at a lower le- level than trying to make them into players that are playing yeah, a different so set of rules? That's one of a handful of, um, I think, quite important arguments that was made in opposition to the change. like. Mm. Because effectively you break the pathway. You you put a you you put a break in the pipeline. Because mm. normally you'd go through the system. The the thinking, for instance, there just as an aside was, if you're good enough to be in the pathway, you're probably taken out into academies and so forth when you're a young player anyway, and you can you can manage that relatively small one percent of three percent, whatever it is, of players, and then teach them how to tackle up later on in life. I think it's it's. It's much easier to learn how to tackle higher once you've learned low than it is to go lower once you've learned high in terms of coaching the tackle. Mm-hmm. You know, so all the coaching manuals in the world teach players to level to down, down, to hit the just above the waist and so on. So you're actually not asking people to teach a technique that's unfamiliar to people. It's just that for reasons of laziness and tactics, they've gone higher and higher and higher and le- unlearned the maybe the better behavior. So, and also layers of physicality because there are some players. So I think particularly of our own South African uh, former flyer Butch James, who was a, he was he was almost his he was famous for never using his arms, but he was almost <laughs> using that as a tactic to intimidate his opposite number. Yeah, you can um, smash a guy much harder yeah, in theory at the yeah. at the collarbone. Yeah, right. And then that would be that guy would be intimidated during the game because he didn't want to get tackled by Butch James again. Yeah. So it and changes the the, the the type of player. And that's it, you're right. It does, and that's and that's to some extent the culture change that the sport is fighting is this is the idea that lower equals soft, you know, mm. and trying to make the point that you can tackle the guy as hard as you want at the belly and mm. smash him backwards, and he can leave his mouth guard behind and his fillings fall out because he hits him so hard, but but just don't go near his head, you know. So yeah. there's a culture there's a culture change that needs to be also accompany this, and the reason this league thing is so interesting is is it seems that they haven't landed that culture change. They haven't gotten the buy-in. Unless you believe that this referee was being like unbelievably liberal, but I can guarantee you no referee wants to give penalties. They're looking not to give them. So by the time you've given 49, there's probably more that he hasn't given than has. (laughs) So, but the problem now is that there's so much blowback. The coaches hate him, the refs, uh, the, the, the supporters, the players and so on. And that, that applies pressure and human nature does what in response to pressure it changes its behavior and so the next ref won't give 49 he'll give 35 and then one after that will give 25 and eventually you'll be back to two or three and you wouldn't have achieved the behavior change you were after mm-hmm. so it's kind of like taking a bad medicine you know if you give your daughter she's sick mm-hmm. let's say or your son when he was a when he was a, a, a youngster 
You say you're sick, you need to taste this medicine. He spits it out. He says, tastes horrible, I don't want it. You don't as a parent say, okay, I get it. Sorry it tasted bad, I won't do it again. You say, no, you need the medicine. You need the medicine. Drink yeah. it. Yeah. And you can wash it down with something afterwards. You Maybe you compromise a little bit, right? Yeah. But you have to do you it. And if, way, you don't, yeah. if you don't take the medicine, you're not going to change the thing. So yeah. That's, yeah. that's the challenge for all the contact sports. Not just rugby. This is rugby league. Yeah. But I mean, for me, it's like... I'm encouraged by how many unions are now going to lower tackle height. And I, th I think that's that's mm. a good step. And will it happen in the future in the professional game? It might, coming back to your question. The professional game has largely rejected the changes in height because they say it'll change the game too much. The professionals, in theory, have got a better skill set with which to tackle up and higher and so forth. Because you have to bring people along the journey with you. You can't just... You know, even as a parent, like you can't just insist. I suppose at mm. some point you do, mm. but you've got to bring the stakeholders with you. And I don't know where the link was broken in this rugby league thing, but clearly it didn't happen. Yeah, uh, we've got to wrap up pretty soon. But a couple of quick stories we can go through. And there's been, as I say, a lot of stuff. Um, smaller ball for women's rugby. I mean, what's the what's the latest on that? We have discussed that on a past podcast that because the smaller ball would actually get make the game potentially more attractive amongst women's, women's rugby players. Yeah, and enable them to execute skills that currently aren't possible or as possible because of a smaller hand relative to ball. I mean, it's a fact, again, that men's hands are bigger than women's hands. And so when you play with the same ball, you, you have a disproportionately large ball, and that might affect handling, passing accuracy, passing speed, ability to offload, potentially elements of kicking, the line-out, certain skill phases. So back before COVID, World Rugby put to its Women's Working Group and High Performance Commission the possibility of trialing a smaller ball in certain competitions. And it was agreed that that would proceed, and then COVID shut everything down. And it seems now, it was reported in the Telegraph on Monday, that they're going to revive that in some, some competitions in Asia initially. And then based on the feedback, I guess surveys and qualitative stuff, maybe roll it out more widely. I think it's the right thing to do myself. You know, it's not unique. Uh, women's basketball uses a smaller ball. Uh, women's tennis in some competitions uses a slightly lighter ball. Field events like the discus weighs half as much for women as it does for men. The hammer almost half the weight for women as for men. Because in the end, it's about like the entertainment and the quality of the product as viewed from the outside. And the, the counterpoint, of course, and this comes from the women players, and you have to respect it, is they want to play the same game with the same equipment as the men do. Fair enough, but that's not the case in other sports. And I'd, I'd say you'd rather play the same game that looks the same because of different equipment than, than a game with the same equipment that looks different, right? Mm. So we'll see what happens. There was a vote on the Telegraph article, which I last looked at on Monday afternoon, and it was a 60-40 split in favor of a smaller ball. So it's not exactly unanimous. And obviously that would have also rolled down to, imagine, junior versions of the sport. Which, so you can have younger players with smaller... Which already happens. Yeah. There's already a size four ball that's played yeah. in juniors. And then yeah. it grows to a five. And the, mm. the the ball that I think was being tried now is a four and a half. So it's not a massive change. It's not like you're going to see them chucking a tennis ball about. Mm. So, yeah. you know, there's always... That. And again, you see this overreaction. Leave it alone. Mm. It's like, no, no, let's just nudge the thing and see what happens and make small changes, study them, understand, then maybe go go to big... I think I think it's a good thing for the game. I mean, the women's game's developing at a rapid rate. The skill level's already improved, like, out of sight compared to the last World Cup. I think this then accelerates that even more, and it makes the product even more entertaining. And, and 
okay, I'm not all about let's just make everything entertaining. Yeah. But it matters and it'll help, I think. And another quick one, this is, uh, I find this quite amusing. There's a thing called the Alt Backyard Ultras, which involves running 4.1 mile loops around any of your, either your backyard, because this one happens particularly on a, on a farm that we're talking about. But the, the record before that was held by a woman by the name of Jennifer Russo, who ran 311 miles. And now it's recently broken by a guy called Phil Gore, an Australian, who ran 373 miles in four days on a cattle farm in southern Queensland over that sort of 4.1 mile loop. And again, it's one of those incredible endurance stories that must be mind-numbing to do. Um, but I suppose it doesn't matter what format you want to put an endurance challenge into, somebody's going to try and break a record. Yeah, these backyard <laughs> altars are interesting. So that, that record there is the, the, the 311 is the women's one, I think, right? Yes. And the previous record was, uh, was 302 laps, 101 oh, right. laps. Yes, and this guy ran 102 laps. Jennifer Russo wrote According to Volta's one, yes. Yes. Um, and so it's a new record for backyard altars. And yeah. the concept of the backyard altar is interesting. It's like you've got an hour to complete a lap. Mm. And if you run that lap in 17 minutes, which is like four-minute mile pace, okay, so you're not doing that, then you get 43 minutes rest. Yeah. If you run it in 59 minutes, you get one minute's rest. So it's quite cool because you, you basically choose your intensity to balance your recovery. Mm. And, yeah, this guy made it for, for – uh, for 373 miles, which means non-stop running for basically four days without sleep. <laughs> yeah, crazy, yeah. Unless you take a siesta in the 20 minutes between your last mile and, the, and when the next hour begins and you have to start running again. Mm. So crazy. So that was full gore, broke that record. And then on the women's side, there was also a maybe even more remarkable ultramarathon record this weekend. Did you pick that oh, one yeah, up? Oh, yeah, Western States with Courtney mm. Devolta, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was the big favorite going into it, but smashes... The, the, the record, didn't she? Yeah, like from an hour, hour off it. Hour I mean, just 80 minutes off that course yeah. record, which was yeah. not a bad record. It's not like it was soft. Yeah. Um, Dawalt is the one, remind me, she she won the Cape Town. She won the Ultra Cape Town event. Probably, it was 80K, wasn't it? No, she won the 100 miler, so 160 kilometers. No, sorry, 100 miler. She was did it, that a couple of years ago. So, so was it 100 miler even sorry, two years ago? kilometers, 100 60 miles. La right. Remember, because last that's year they right. did the 100 miler for the first time. Miles. And then yes. the year before, there was 100K. Yes. But I mean, we tried to get an interview with her. We couldn't make we it We did, actually. I did end up talking to her for a story I did in Runner's World. And she was quite fascinating in terms of how she talks about her training. Because mm. she's not a person that follows a training plan. She just kind of wakes up at 4 o'clock pretty much every morning, has a coffee, does her emails, and then kind of strolls out the door and decides what she's going to do on any given day day depending on how her body feels so she's very unstructured and yeah. famous for wearing basketball shorts when she runs yes but arguably the greatest trail endurance runner of her generation if not ever um and yeah it's yeah. hard to hard to argue against yeah. someone who's got a in like because western states still regarded as the peak the trail run the big the big daddy of trailing. <laughs> uh, next to ultra trail mont blanc i guess would be the the, yeah. the premium one but those would probably be the two biggest trails. and maybe leadville in the u.s but yeah. when you when you're an, when you're over an hour faster than the next best person in history never mind in a year mm. i guess you've got a legit claim as the best ever yeah um the most famous um, western states performance Trayson. is Anne Trayson, who mm. won the race outright yeah um in the early yeah. 90s um, yeah against the so what's, as in, well. what's interesting on that is that this this record might have been due revision because i looked at it the previous record was ellie greenwood mm. who's south record? africans would know because one comrades in 2014 Something i think like it that. was and uh sh that that record was like 13 and a half 14 percent behind the men's record at western states Dawalt has now made it 9.8 so 
the difference between the men's and women's world records in Western states is now similar to the men's and world record in the marathon, the 100 meters and so on. So it's probably in line now with where it needed to be. Mm. But it's an interesting time for ultras. And, you know, like you had Camille Heron break the 24-hour and the 48-hour yeah, record true. last year. Yeah. So it, seem, it seems like it's it's either attracting a different caliber of athletes to go up to those monster distances sooner or the type of training and the preparation they're doing is advanced considerably compared to Trayson. I mean, Trayson would have been hours behind Dawalter. Amazing yeah. to think. Let's, yeah. I mean, there's, there's some winning times in the men's race from the last few years that are slower than Dawalter this year. So yeah. really interesting. And there was a, some good, just as a last point on this, some good debate on Patreon from the, in fact, <laughs> many of the topics we've discovered oh, and yeah. discussed today are sent to us by our Patreon research team, <laughs> which is what I'm calling the, the members of Patreon who are more active on that community. Guys like Gareth, Joshua, thanks very much, especially to them. Pratima was heavily um, involved this week, made some really insightful comments about treating people with, with brain disease, or not brain disease, brain injury. And why it's a public health burden. So if you want to, if you want to follow that conversation, which I think is more, <laughs> maybe as interesting as what you and I talk about in yes. some instances, uh, you sign up to Patreon, you pledge a small amount every month, and then it gives you access. A, a newsletter comes out with each podcast. We then dive into those topics. The, the, the chats in response to my articles are often more informative <laughs> than the articles. In fact, not often. They, they almost always are. Yeah. yeah, so thanks very much to, to those patrons. And it was, I think, um, Gareth, Joshua, and one other whose name I'm going to look for now so that I don't neglect anyone who let us know about and about Star Walter's performance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we didn't get to all of the news purely because we kind of run out of time, but we'll try and pick that up uh, some of the stuff into our next podcast. But for those of you who are looking forward to the Tour de France as we are this coming weekend, we hope you enjoy the three weeks of action. And we're going to try and bring you some of uh, our thoughts as we go through the Tour de France and particularly when it comes to some of the stats and the science behind that event as well, because we are in love with the sport as much as we are any sport. So we, we will have a little bit of a Tour de France bias, I reckon, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, it was no. Doug, by the way. Doug. Thanks, Doug. Doug was the first one who posted on the patron sites about Courtney's performance there and said, can't be the shoes, at least. At least we have confidence. I'm not yes. entirely I'm not entirely sure that's true. I'll be, what, what, do you know what shoes she runs in, just as a last question? Uh, I think she's a Sacconi athlete. And are the, are, the tra- are the trail runners wearing the carbon shoe? Well, they are carbon versions of the shoe, but yeah. I need to do some more. Because just very quickly in response to that, like mm. on the trail, obviously, you have such variable terrain and surfaces that it's probably not likely that you're going to get the same acute in-race benefits as you do on the road in a marathon. But one of the biggest limiting factors in trail running, especially these 100 milers that are very up and down and hilly, is just the eccentric damage, like the load yeah. on the legs after 10, 11, 12, 13th hour. And if the shoe does what it appears increasingly likely it's it's um, being claimed by athletes is it provides a stable surface but one that's also very soft and it might reduce that soft tissue damage. And if that's the case, then the shoes would be performance enhancing in the trail events as well. So I wouldn't entirely discount it. But that aside, I agree with Doug's main point is that she's just incredible and doesn't get anything like the mentions that it might do given the the, the degree by which she breaks that record and the quality of the record just as a standalone. Yeah. So yeah, she so, just seems to get stronger and stronger each year, which is remarkable. So then we got into it, Gareth and jo- Joshua replied, and we, we said, look, we can entice her to comrades. Yes. But probably be way too short for her. <laughs> and also, she's probably not fast enough on the road, actually. You say that, but mm. 
Ellie Greenwood yeah. held the previous Western States. That was broken in 2012. Yeah. Two years later, one comrades in six hours 19. Which was relatively slow. Well, Before not anymore. Time. Not anymore. And that was an uprun. Mm, okay, yeah. So not anymore. So mm. if, you're, if you're an hour and 20 minutes faster than someone over 160, do you reckon you could be 25 minutes faster than over 80? Yeah. Okay. I reckon. You break six hours. Yeah. And then it puts Dowalter in contention to beat Stein. But don't forget, conditions so. were absolutely ideal at Western States. It was cool, yeah. which is often quite rare. Uh, it's often a very hot event, so the yeah. conditions, as it was with the comrades this year, very cool, perfect conditions. So, yeah, again, it was, it's it's all about conditions, I guess. Um, the only thing that's good about the Western States is that the course distance doesn't change as opposed to the comrades <laughs> where things do change every single year. So bests and records are not really relevant. But this one is a record because the course is still the same distance. So, yeah. Anyway, so that's an interesting one. And uh, yeah, I, I still would love to do an interview with Courtney. I think we must maybe revisit that and uh, try and get her on, on the pod because I think she's a fascinating person just because she's so unbelievably, I mean, maybe we shouldn't do it as a science sport, but because she's very unscientific about the way that she trains. Um, but it works for her. So yeah, She might be consciously unscientific, but yeah. I guarantee you she's landing on certain principles that everyone else can apply that do fit with and maybe they don't maybe they contradict it and that'll be even more interesting to explore yeah so i agree yeah mm. thanks again professor ross tucker and thanks very much for listening and we'll be back uh, pretty much next week uh, with uh, more updates on the new side tour de france and uh, bits and pieces that we'll be getting out uh, for your podcast but thanks for listening goodbye thank you for listening to the science of sport podcast follow us on twitter at sports and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.